This episode of Bass Freaks is brought to you by Dunlop Bass Strings. Dunlop Bass Strings are made in California and designed by the players at Dunlop to sound and feel the way a string should. With deep lows, strong fundamental punchy mids, and articulate highs. Dunlop Bass Strings offer a complete line with standard nickel and stainless round wounds, flat wounds, and super brights. They're also available in short, medium, and long scales. So go to jimdunlop.com and check out Dunlop Bass Strings. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Dunlop Presents Bass Freaks. The Bass Freaks podcast is a place to gain some insight and inspiration, as well as learn a little something about some truly amazing bass players. I'm your host, Josh Paul. And our guest on this episode of the Bass Freaks podcast is the great Rufus Philpot. Rufus is not only a phenomenal bassist, but an educator and a musical director as well. He's played with Alan Holdsworth, Scott Henderson, Tony McAlpine, David Gilmore, and is a member of Planet X and the Virgil Donati Group and many, many, many more. Dude, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me, Josh. Yeah, um, I should point out, I never played live with Holdsworth. We're on an album together. We recorded together. Um, well, I should say, okay, let me rephrase. You've worked yeah. with Alan Holdsworth. Yeah. And, and I did get to meet Alan, which was nice. So, you know, he, he was, as you probably know, the stories of you ever met him, was very self-effacing, you know, which is a very English thing, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, and he was, it was very sweet to me. It was funny. I think I was introduced by a guy called Tom Meek, who's like a jazz critic, you know, in town. And he writes, so he does a lot to support the scene. Tom has been really good. You know, he always promote the, the gigs and who's on the baked potato and, you know, all the kind of local hangs. And, uh, and I think I'd already seen Alan at that gig, but then Tom kind of reintroduced us. And, it was, and I'd just done that track with Alan and Simon Phillips. I think it was Derek Sherinian on keyboards and uh, Jerry Goodman from the Mahavishnu on violins. It was like sort of like a pantheon of, wow. you know, all-star, all-star group. And I was like this sort of young kid, you know, the new kid. And uh, and he goes, oh, Alan, do you remember Rufus? And it was funny. And Alan looks at me and he goes, he goes oh, I do. He goes, yes, a lot of notes, but just the good ones, you know. And I, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Wait, a really what, nice compliment from Holzerath. You know? Yeah. What was the name of that track? That was called... God, I think it might be called One Way or the Other or Trojan Horse. It's one of those two. It's on Derek's solo record. Okay. And, and he had me come in and uh, I, I went to his house in Burbank and um, and I think he might have had another bass player attempt the track. And it's like one of those, you know, you know, crazy riffs and it's like like in seven, it's like din 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 you know, these little groupings and you know, of course there was no chart for it or anything, so I just like had to sit in the kitchen. <laughs> trying to like make a guide chart for it, you know, like figure the baseline out. Yeah. It was recording in about an hour. And I was like, oh, you know, I did it. And then there was a middle section that Simon wrote, which was, I think, in five. But like, this was like a, the riff was in like a pretty cr crazy kind of 716 thing, as I remember. And then I think the outro went to this incredible, it was like a 5 4 groove that was kind of like a Mahavishnu esque kind of thing, just sort of menacing slow five thing. And then the middle section where Alan soloed was like more of a, you know, like funk rock kind of fusion kind of groove in seven as well. But it sort of became like more of a, po a pocket thing, you know, rather than a constant riff. You know, That's so it. I had come up with like kind of a 16th groove, but it was in seven. One, I think one bar might be four. Yeah, one bar is four, one bar is seven. I don't know. And, you know, to make it breathe, you know what I mean? Make it feel organic. 
So it was a really fun way to get sort of thrown in on the LA scene because I think that happened in my first few months here. Oh, you know? wow. You know, because the stuff I was doing in New York definitely wasn't prog rock. It was like, you know, I had some a few gigs. I went to Ecuador with Randy Brecker and I, you know, was teaching at the Bass Collective in Manhattan with uh, John Palatucci, who was the head of the faculty at that point. It was Lincoln Goins and Mike Pope and Matt Garrison. Matt and oh. I are about the same age. I might be a little younger than Matt. So we were, I might be the youngest guy on the faculty at that point. And How long did you do that? Maybe two years. Okay. The, it was kind of a, a legendary sort of thing because it started life as the drummers collective, I think. So a lot of heavy New York cats had been through their teaching, you know, like kind of have a steady gig, but, you know, between obviously touring and so on. Right. And unlike any music school I'd ever known in England, it was very much like sort of, it could be a lot of heavy guys like kind of just coming in to play and hang because of the tradition. You know, it was like, it was very much like drummers. And then there was also the bass factory, which was great too. It was like, there was this thing, you know, and I mean, let's face it for bass players. I mean, most of my best friends are drummers. Right. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Mean, yeah. I mean, sometimes it's other bass players, but you're sort of competing in a way, aren't you sometimes? <laughs> but if it's a drummer, this is your, this is your teammate, right? Right. It's your wingman. This is everything, right? Absolutely. And, and so, you know, in England, like in, I went to college, Newcastle College of Music, and then I went to the Guildhall, which is more like a Juilliard thing, you know, so there's a drama department too. But we would listen to these records and get them from the one store in the whole city that sold American import fusion, you know, not really a huge market even then, you know, it was like specialist, right? And I just these albums would blow us away, you know. And uh, so I remember going to the collective, and it was a bass player called Leo Traverse. It was a great, Bassist in New York plays great Brazilian stuff, amazing feel on, you know, great guy. And I lent Leo a bass amp. I think I had a Walter Woods, I still have it. You know the Walter Woods bass yeah. amp? So I, I got Walter to build me the um, the top of the line, the blue light, the one that's 1200 watts, and you know, it only weighs like six pounds. Because when oh, you wow. live in New York, you can't afford a car if you live in Manhattan, right? So you have to have like <laughs> a little hand truck, right? You know? Yeah. And you see drummers on the subway, you know, with a kit, a full kit, right? You know, like a full <laughs> you need a kit, right? It's like a ride, a snare, kick. Yeah, that's it, hi-hat, right? That's what Steve Haas, we were talking about that. He's a great drummer, too. So, so anyway, so Leo, I led this amp, and, and I think he wanted to kind of return the favor and goes, man, would you like to, can you cover a class for me uh, of the collective on Monday? And it's Kim Plainfield's Afro Fusion Caribbean, whatever, you know, funk masterclass thing. And I was like, sounds great, you know? And so I got this message. I might have a fairly deep voice, but Tim's was like, you know, the voice of, you know, like eternity. Dude, it was like, and he was like, this is Kim Blainfield. Uh, I want you to be in my class at 11 a.m. tomorrow. And I was like, oh my God. And so you're even more nervous now because, you know, like if I screw up, this guy's just going to like destroy me. So I tell up and, uh, you can bleep out the swearing, but it's better with, with it. No, I enjoyed the swearing. It's okay. So I, I walked in and I said, oh, hello, Kim, nice to meet you. Know, and he just goes, oh, goddamn limey motherfucker. You know, and <laughs> straight in with, uh, you know. So I was just like, well, it's better than being a septic tank, which is a cockney for, for Yank, right? Uh, and so, okay, okay. And I don't know if he got it, but he liked the fact I immediately, I wasn't just sort of stunned into embarrassed silence, you know. And, and we sat down and he immediately pulled out, I think it was actual proof, Herbie Hancock, a chart for that, which I don't think I'd ever played. So I'm sight reading this Herbie tune, which is quite an involved tune. 
So it was like a sight reading kind of like workout too. Like if, if I hadn't been able to read, I would have looked like a real idiot. No. And, uh, <laughs> well, he was in, and Bill O'Connell, who wrote the tune, was in the class subbing on keys. So oh, wow. was, not only is this sight reading boom, but oh, there's a guy who wrote it. He's going to yeah. play me. In case you yeah. fuck it up. He'll yeah. <laughs> so I did. And so Kim and Ian Fromm, who's another great jazz drummer. See what I mean about drummers being your friends, right? Right. They, they both kind of fast-tracked me onto the faculty. So literally, I think two weeks after that subbing on that class, I was on the faculty. Uh, you, so you passed the test. You did. Yeah. You yeah. killed it. It was, it was a treat because, you know, I've been in LA much longer. I was only in New York for four and a half years, but I still feel that was like the real, um, I don't know, there's something about, you know, that, that magical thing the first time you moved to a new country. And, you know, sort of New York, especially with the jazz thing, especially the electric jazz thing. You think that's what Jocko was, right? The Mike Stern hang at the original 55 grand, and then it moved to the 55 bar, I think I'm right in saying. And then, you know, you got 7th Avenue South. That was before my time, which is the Brecker Brothers Club, you know? And uh, yeah, it was, a, it, it was an amazing time. Things just kept happening there that were surreal. You know, I'd walk down the street and I'd see... Uh, Tom Barney, who's the bass player for Steely Dan, and as long as Miles the Star people, right? Uh -huh. I just walked down the street and I was like, that's Tom Barney. And I'd run up, I'd chase after him on the street. And I went, hello. And I said, you're Tom Barney, aren't you? And he's like, yeah, man. He goes, what's going on? I said, I just moved here. He goes, oh, welcome. He goes, do you play upright? And, and I do, but not as well as electric. Now, what I should have done is just gone, yes. And, <laughs> And I did. I was like, but he goes, look, I'm doing The Lion King, you know, which at the time was like the biggest musical show. Oh, Broadway. the Broadway show. Okay. Okay. And the thing is, all the cats would have a Broadway show because you can sub it out 50% of the time, right? And not lose the gig. Right. So if you like touring, let's face it, the way tours work, it's unless it is the Stones or something, you're probably not going to have a whole year of touring, but right. you've got this cushy gig. So right away, he was kind of asking, did I want to come and sub on that? Which was like remarkable because you have to politic your way into that normally, right? You yeah. know, right? I never followed up because, you know, I was like, you know, I didn't really know that that was a huge break being offered to me. I was like, oh, man, yeah, let me, you know, we swap numbers. But I really wanted to hustle my way around the club scene. You know what I mean? I didn't want to really lock myself into that. I wanted to be like, you know, I sitting on the heavy gigs and get a gig yeah. you know what i mean that's uh so let's go back a little bit how did you get from the uk to the us i started visiting i actually met a bass player um, tim lefebvre oh yeah it came over to england to play with wayne krantz and zach danziger and somehow the visas got screwed up so tim was stranded in london for a few days and so I, I i ended up meeting up with tim and took him out on the town in London and we ended, ended up having all sorts of adventures that can't really be shared here, but, uh, you know, <laughs> Tim's was, awesome. I mean, He's a great dude. Cause I think I had a, a crush on the jazz club owner's daughter at the time. And Tim very discreetly kind of stepped out of the way when I needed to, you know, chatter up and try and at least charm her, you know, I don't <laughs> think I did, but I tried. And, uh, anyway, so Tim and I kept in touch. And so my next trip out there, I ended up doing the voiceover, work on that Bluth record, which is really obscure drum and bass kind of jazz. I don't know what you call it, but it's got elements of the live drum and bass stuff they were doing and all sorts of weird humor stuff in it. Um, 
And it was Zach's pro- Zach Danziger's project and Tim and a guy called Pete Davenport is also a drummer. And I think Kranz might have been on there for a little bit. Pete McCann okay. on guitar. A lot of great players. Dennis Chambers might be doing some voice stuff on it. Oh, wow. And they wanted a, an English news broadcaster, like a BBC News guy. Uh-huh. So I had to talk about, uh, you know, just make up this ridiculous sort of, you know, uh, this is the nine o'clock news from the BBC with all this kind of crazy weird music going on behind me. And then I was also the big bad wolf. And so I just remember we did like a pornographic kind of dialogue between Little Red Riding Hood and the band. I was, band, I was like, hello, little girl, what's in the basket? You know, and, and you know, it's hard to think. I, can't, I don't know why they thought of me for that, you know. So, so that was kind of, and I think all the guys I met wrote me references so I could get my first O one one in my office. Oh, yeah. Piece. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, it, the whole thing was like New York was just, yeah, come, come on over, you know, and uh, open arms. So it, it literally was like nine months from when I arrived full time, which is 1999, I think mid like June. And I think within nine months, I was working full time as a musician. But in the meantime, I got a bartending job, right? And that's the <laughs> best thing you can get in New York because it's sort of cash in hand, right? And, yeah. uh, and it was, the bartender was like a bike biker gang kind of guy. You know, he was about like 280 pounds, shaved head, Harley Davidson with the big leather side bags you know, with the tassels on them. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And his bike, but I managed to convince him that what he needed was a jazz night every Wednesday. At the biker bar? It's like <laughs> on 46th and 10th Avenue. It's called Mr. Biggs with two Gs. <laughs> so it was fun. You know, it, it was just, and then, I think within two months, the manager asked me, or sorry, the owner asked me to become the manager of the place. And I said, I can't. I said, if I do it, I'll give up on the playing. You know, I know what will happen. You'll want me all day and all night managing this place. So just at that time where it was like, well, once you kind of say no, you kind of got to find something else because you're going to probably be let go at that point. So I weirdly, again, a coincidence, the musical director for Saturday Night Fever, which was pretty hot at that point on Broadway, was from London, and I'd done some subbing on the show in London, and we bumped into each other on the, in the street or something. And I was like, "Martin, he goes, Rufus, what are you doing here?" I said, "I live here." And he goes, "You want? You should come in and do the show." And I'm like, "All right." So I went down. You know, you, you know. I don't know if you've done any of that stuff, but there's a, again the politics of the Broadway thing or getting in on the show, and certainly in LA too, right? You go. It's a long journey usually. Yes. Right? So I go down to sit and watch the show because I haven't played it in like a year or two. And the regular bass player was a nice enough guy and, you know, it was fine. And I, I went in and did it. And, I, you know, of course, I, I mean, it's not rocket science. You know, you just read the charm, play it right. You know? Right. Um, but the thing is, the bass player called me. was like, well, I, everyone said it was like, yeah, man, you're like Jocko. You came in and just, and I was like, I don't know if that's good or bad. Because I didn't overplay, but I just went in and kind of wanted to own it. Do you know what yeah. I mean? You just, you don't go in and mess around when you're subbing. Right. I think you go and play it better than the other guy. You have to so make you, a mark. Yeah. yeah. You also don't want to make the guy you're subbing for look bad. If you come in and suck, everyone's going to be on him and go, dude, that guy was awful, right? <laughs> but it was weird. I didn't get another call for a month, right? And then I bumped into the musical director on the street again. And he goes, why haven't you been in subbing? I said, I just, I didn't get called. I figured you didn't like what I did. And he goes, oh, you're going to be in tomorrow. And he, True as words. So I don't know quite what happened. I guess oh, maybe wow. I whatever. You played I a little too well. <laughs> so 
next thing you know is I get offered the, the national tour of it. I've, I've been in New York now for a little over a year, teaching at the collective now. And now I get offered this tour and, and I was just like, I'm a working bass player now, which is nice, but it wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't a guy to have my photo on the wall, but it was just really very cool. And everyone there was amazing. And then I, I left the show after that because I kind of was done. You know, I couldn't take the repetition, you know? Yeah. Uh, let's but, say, yeah, let's, okay. Let's go back a little bit. What made you want to be a bass player first? Was there any, any particular influence that, that you saw and you were like, holy shit, I want that? Yeah, I, I think there's two things. So we, we had a, a store called Woolworths. I mean, you might have Woolworths here or I've had a Woolworths. A but store? In England, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the Woolworths in England was one where you could buy, you know, everything from cheap, nasty Christmas presents to they had a, a vinyl record department and cassettes as well. Right? And so I went to a... Uh, I was telling some of the guys, you know, last night at the party, I went to a boarding school in England, right? So um, we were pretty poor growing up, but the, the good education available was at the local, was at the boarding school, you know, near where we lived. Mm-hmm. And so my mum, you know, she got me in there. I, I applied and I got a scholarship, but it wasn't for music. I was there academically. I was going to go to Oxford University and read English literature. Oh, wow. So, until I had an argument with the individual. Uh, so, <laughs> sorry. About bass playing, about me, about jazz, probably. But anyway. So, um, so I, I went to Woolworths and they had this, you know, like discount sales section. And, you know, I only had like a couple of quid pocket money. And I remember finding a, they had a few albums. They had a Bill Bruford album called One of a Kind, mm-hmm. which is Holdsworth and Jeff Boleyn and Bill and Dave Stewart. It was a great prog keyboard player from like Hatfield in the North, right? And all those and the National Health, you know. Yeah. It's a killer record. That's like, Everyone who likes the Bruford stuff is kind of like, well, the other two are good, but one of a kind is like it, you know. And Holdsworth on that is ridiculous. We actually played one of the tunes off that with Virgil's band with Tony McAlpine. We did the track 5G, I think it was. And uh, yeah, Virgil, though, everyone loves that record. If they're into kind of like prog rock, uh-huh. it's kind of like one of those, it's like Led Zepp too, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah. Or one, or three, or four, you know, take them all. Um, so I think I got that record, and obviously Jeff's, you know, playing some monster stuff on it. I mean, he, there's a ridiculous solo on one of those tracks. And and then I found a Paco de la Thea record, a great flamenco guitar player, and it's Carlos Benevent, who I believe is still with us, who's an amazing fretless player. And Carlos was playing a, I think it was an old Gibson or Greco semi-hollow bass, you know, with the F-holes, uh-huh. with a pick, fretless. Okay. And it's such a cool sound. And and Carlos is so unique. He doesn't sound like Jaco. He doesn't sound like, you know, he sounds like him, you know. And and there's a record that Paco did, I think it's Solo Criero Caminar, which is the one that really introduced fretless electric bass to flamenco. So Paco was really instrumental in bringing the cajon, the electric bass into flamenco. I think some people would argue there may be others, but it was really Paco, I think. And so even as a 13-year-old, I, I, I loved that album. So those records, I think, were the... And then also I had these teachers, um, my chemistry and French teacher, used to record cassettes for me, and they did me Jethro Tull. So they uh, gave you some mixtapes. Yeah. So right I did Jethro Tull, Minstrel in the Gallery. Always remember that record. Great band. Great. I mean, amazing. Fix the Brick, which is a brilliant, very funny, dark lyrics. And, uh, and yes, you know, the first time I heard you know, Fragile and the Yes album, you know, Chris Squire. It's like, 
right? Yeah. <laughs> Getting open. Like, okay, that's, that's, you know. So I think from that age, and then I think I found a bass on the, on the floor of the school rehearsal room. What, what was it? It was, it might have been one of those Gibson EBOs, okay. you know? I yeah. think I remember being on that cherry red or mahogany finish, you know, that a lot of those had. Yeah. Like I did those bases. Yeah, cool, they're cool, yeah. right? And I love yeah. those huge tuning pegs. Yeah. You know, when you're a kid, the strings on a bass seem huge, don't they? They're very thick. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, yes. Pluck the E string and it has that metallic durr. And, you know, just without the amp, you're just like, oh, what's this? It's like an alien thing. You know, it <laughs> sort of, you know, it's going to sound great plugged in. But yeah. right now it's just, just menacing kind of, you know, low sound. And uh, that was it. I, I was playing saxophone very badly. And um, the teachers used to bribe me to stop practicing saxophone. <laughs> I was... <laughs> The practice room was next to the staff room, so they were coming to give me a quit. You know, All right, Rufus, I think you're done. You know, I've done I've only done five minutes, uh, you know. Uh, and uh, and so I said to my mom, I want to play bass. And someone owed my dad some money. That's a whole other story. And uh, so we drove to Wales, and this guy, kind of hippie looking guy, and the place kind of smelled of weed and kind of like funky den that he had with his music stuff. He, he had an old Antigua finished jazz bass, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, now that's a nice bass. But unfortunately, that wasn't for me. So we went into a back room and pulled out this old Burns new Sonic. They're like little short scale basses. Okay. It really wasn't a great bass. You know, I had little crappy guitar tuners on it. They basically converted the guitar to a bass, I think, you know. Ah, uh, uh, okay. But it was very small. And so for a kid, you know, you could eat, I could rip around it because it was tiny. You know, you didn't, I don't have very big hands. It was very easy to play. Um, and that was it. I was done. That was, I knew that was it. I love it. I think I was just, I was really enamored with anything that was brilliantly done. You know, yeah. I, I'm not a fan of like mediocre or vanilla stuff. You know, if, if I, I, you know, I was talking about this with some friends last night. Um, and this could be controversial, but this is how I feel. I feel like, you know, in the 1980s, which is, I know it's hard to believe that I'm not 25, uh, the, you know, <laughs> in the 1980s, you know, the, the you know, the, the, think about the bass players in the 80s who were doing sessions, right? So you had, I mean, from, from the States, you had guys like Tony Levin, right? Marcus Miller was already getting in that scene and doing everything here, here, but also playing like Brian Ferry's Boys and Girls record, right? You had the guys in England, so you have like Elvis Costello's band, but like Bruce Thomas. And Bruce was also, I think, a bit of a session guy too. But I mean, that amazing sound, you know, like on this year's model and armed forces, that's got some yeah. of the greatest bass. That was one of the other albums that completely floored me, by the way. That I still have my original copy. Of that. I got to revisit that. That's, that's I need a, to revisit it. Model has, um, I don't want to go to Chelsea on it and pump it up. Has a great chromatic line in it, right? And it's just, it's just like really gnarly playing. Do you know what I mean? It's the sort of playing that might steal your wallet in a dark alley. You know what I mean? <laughs> I love it. That's that's yeah. that's my shit. I love it. Yeah, that bass playing is not giving up its seat for your grandma on the bus. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that is gnarly shit, which I love. <laughs> and then you had the other guys who, and this was like probably my first pop influence. Well, there's two. Mick Khan, bass player, played for Japan. Yeah. 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 I think every interview I've ever done, I always talk about him because it's just to me, it's like there's a guy that, I mean, and by his own account, by everyone else's, but he knew very little formally about music, right? But 
he just managed to arrive at a voice on the instrument that was, you can't not hear Mick Khan within a bar. You're like, it's Mick Khan, right? It's not Jaco. Right. It's not Percy Jones, even though I definitely think all the guys in Japan were very into Eno's stuff, like Another Green World, which has Fripp, you know, and obviously Percy. And then David Sylvian, the singer, his solo stuff is littered with the guys from Eno's thing. Fripp's all over the second album of Gone to Earth. And even the artwork is by Russell Mills, who did some of Eno's records, like Fourth World Possible Music with John Hassel on, on trumpet and synth. And John Hassel's all over Sylvian stuff. So mm -hmm. I think there was a precedent for Mick's playing in, in Percy. They also both played Walls. It was interesting that Mick went and got a wall bass, right? <laughs> and I don't know if you know that album Tin Drum they did? No. You've got to check that album out. It's, okay. it's Steve Jansen on drums. I think you'll love it just for, you know, it's of its time, the 80s. It was the album that Tears for Fears will tell you, like Roland Orzabel was like, there'd be no Tears for Fears without Tin Drums. Crazy. Oh, You'll love Mix playing on that. Okay. The bass playing on that record and the drumming, Steve Jansen, you know. And so I think that that sort of, I'm a fan of that. You know, so many people today, they reference the same guys. You know, they reference, you, you can't be a bass player. I'm, you interviewing people. I, I, I listen to a couple of the ones you've done, but it's like, you know, we know Pino's a great player and of course he's iconic, but, you know, if you don't know who he is by now, it's like, it's not that edifying to hear someone talk about him anymore. It's like, I, we get it. You know, he's iconic. He did the D'Angelo stuff. He also did, to me, the, the shit I love was when he played with Paul Young on wherever I lay my hat, the yeah. fretless on that. Yeah, Don Henley too. Right? And that was yeah. off the cuff. The story is, he just they were like, can you just do an intro? Pino just came up with that, and he had no idea when he left they were going to use that and pull everything out of the mix. Wow. So imagine that. It's yeah. that in tune, that beautifully played. And he didn't. it wasn't even like... It's going to be a solo, so you better, you know, it's just kind of like a little thing. And it's yeah. just like, oh, well, that's heavy, right? Yeah. But to me, that was like, yeah, okay, we got that. But then Mick, you know, Mick, Mick stuff is like just something from another planet. You know, I mean, he, he played on one track on Kate Bush's record on um, Sensual World. The track he's on, he's, he's on Midgeur's solo record, uh, Remembrance Day is the track, which is any album he's on where he's a guest, that track, you just literally are like, okay, this bass playing is untouchable. You it know? lifts it up. Yeah, yeah. and I'm a fan, okay. even though you're right, I do a lot of education stuff and, you know, I have students and, you know, obviously stuff from my website and I talk to yeah. the collective and I do seminars for SBL and blah, blah, you know, which is all great fun. But I think people sometimes assume I'll be a sort of a real, uh, you know, kind of a demo demagogue about the sort of, education and you're gonna you're gonna you can't be a musician if you can't read and blah blah i think you should do whatever you want but i think people have an, a tendency to make excuses if they can't read then you hear that stupid thing and it, it is stupid where people go oh but i'm worried it's going to spoil my feel man it's like what's going to spoil your feel is closing your ears and your mind right 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 I don't that's true jackson sucking too badly and they can both read fly shit yeah you know I, mean? I actually haven't heard that that excuse or that oh, believe me you, you, it's it's one that sometimes you know oh man you're all theory knowing theory it's like knowing music theory is just, uh, it's like learning the alphabet to me right. it's like if if shakespeare only knew 12 words i'm not sure he could have come up with king lear do you know what i mean <laughs> right? yes like yes. the sun is yellow sense. the sky was blue the end curtain i'm like yeah, yeah there's something lacking in that play you yes. know 
right? Like, so, keep an open mind for sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. And I feel like, so I love the guys like Mick where they're absolutely kind of virtuosic in their own way. Right. But kind of, probably arriving at some of this stuff almost by accident or because they don't know that that note is a little funky on a major chord or a slide into this. You know what I mean? Just, yeah. just things. And and then there's the guys like Anthony Jackson where things are very schooled, educated play, even though I think by his own admission, he didn't go to study bass. He wanted to at Berkeley and they didn't offer it as a major electric bass. Um, but, you know, he's a very self, I mean, he's very educated musically, right? Right. So I think there's room for all of it. But getting back to that 80s thing, I love the diversity of the players, you know, who are doing the sessions, right? And I feel sometimes now, you know, something becomes a flavor and then it becomes sort of a buzzword. You know, like you, you go into a session and if you're a drummer, you're going to get asked to play like Ringo, right? right, right. So I, I learned from that also that if you're going to teach people, you have to be kind of open. You know, you've got to, you know what I mean? You've got what? to soak stuff up. I think that also helps people find their own voice, right? And that's very influential on people's lives as, as not only musicians, but human beings. I do want to talk to you about gear before we wrap up. Yeah. Um, what bass and amps are you using these days and why? Uh, well, you know what? I probably have to show you. Edit out the awkward pause. So this is, um, <laughs> this is, this is probably the most interesting bass I own and play for certain things. And that's that 86 wall. Oh, wow. This is, a, this is one of a kind that's never made another one like this. So Ian yeah. actually put my name on it, which I didn't ask him to, but he actually put nice. it on. And, but the thing about this is funny, and he also misspelled my name, which is really funny. He put two T's on it. <laughs> he didn't tell me. I was an 18-year-old kid, right? And I spec this to him when I met Jonas and played his bass at the show. Yeah. Like I want the 24 fret neck, you know, uh -huh. but obviously I don't want two of them. I want the single, you know, and 24 frets and I want the four in a row headstock. Right. Yeah. And I want it in one. Ian, look at the wood on this. Not all walls have this sort of wood. Some of them are quite plain, but if yeah. you look at that, right. What, can you, for the listeners, can you describe it a bit? Yeah. So this is basically, it's what Wall eventually started doing with one of their Mark II variants, but it's the Mark II body, right? Which was what they came up with for the five-string walls in the mid-80s. Mm -hmm. But the neck is 24 fret, which was totally new for the four strings. Most of the four strings like, were 20 or 21 fret, went up to an E. Okay. And you know the tip, the classic Wall four string has the two aside tuning pegs, right? Yeah. But this was that four in a row. Right. And so this was the first time it had ever been done. So this was kind of really cool. And I got this when I was 18 and I sold it to help me move to New York. And then just before the pandemic, the bass player friend of my Lawrence Cottle, who's a great bassist in England, he got it back for me from the guy, you know, the guy offered to sell it back to me for a very reasonable price. And I just was like, I got to do it. You know? Yeah. It's got your name on it. Spelt wrong. <laughs> I spelled wrong. <laughs> uh, so it's like, you know, I had to do that. And then the other bass I use is, uh, I love the guys at Exotic. I actually have it here. Um, the guys at Exotic Guitars, you know, which is, they're based here in LA, the Japanese firm. They built me this, it's actually a prototype. This is like a passive jazz bass. Okay. It's in, you see the nice kind of surf green, very yeah. thin. All my basses tend to get this scar where my thumbnail takes yeah. a very, very thick nails like a parrot and uh and this just goes right through the finish and it's got a nice kind of roasted maple net it's a beautiful 
bass and it's passive so they don't really make this bass so but it's one of my favorite jazz basses and then i have a fretless wall five string from the 90s i think it is which i really like which i got from one of my students um yeah yeah so those are my things and you know how i use local company a trick fish you know okay so um they sound amazing they're great right yes you play them or try them I've tried them. Yeah. Very I think cool. Daryl might, um, I think Daryl also uses trick fish. Yeah, um, he does. And yeah. And Justin, who's like the local artist guy, Justin, who they, he yeah, is a great sign. dude. Great He's dude. Really nice cat. And they, for, you know, for an amp that uses, I think it's a digital power amp in there and the lightweight Neo Dynium cabinets. They sound very natural to me, you know? Oh yeah. I, I, I think it doesn't really, well, at least from what I've played, um, doesn't really color it too much. No, so, I really yeah. feel like it's a great, and their little preamp, the, the minnow, you know, the one that's like yeah. a preamp. Yeah. I use that, you know, when you're doing, like, again, if you're doing, you know, because I do those kind of online seminars and masterclass things, you want the bass to sound okay, but it right. wants to be low maintenance. So you just plug in, you know, and for it to sound good, then you go into an interface. And the minnow is great for that. But I actually have a rig set up right in here. Oh, yeah. nice. What about uh, effects? Honestly, the main effects I love, I have a thing for, I mean, I like good reverb pedals because I think they give the sound a little air, especially playing a melody or a melodic line, you know, or a mm-hmm. solo. So I've always enjoyed, I love, I have some the TC Electronics, um, the Hoff and the Mini Hoff pedals I really like. I love envelope filters too. So, um, we didn't really talk about this, but one of the bands I, I was in and I recorded with, there's an album, uh, this band, CPT Kurt, which is Kurt Covington, the drummer from Tribal Tech, right? Okay. So we have, we have a trio with Scott Tibbs on keyboards, and I wrote this track called Drop the Chalupa, which is about, which is that talking chihuahua and the Taco Bell yeah. answer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, coming home kind of from a gig in New York and being, what is this weird talking dog, you know? <laughs> and so that inspired the tune, and it's got this kind of like real wet, envelope bass groove at the beginning, you know? Uh-huh. And so I, I have one of those seventies and Tim actually recommended this. I, you know, the seventies beige MXR pedals, you know, the original ones, the, the MXR envelope. envelope. Like yeah. On it. And, and I think, um, I have one of the more modern MXR ones too, as well, which is really good. The, it's got, it's much more sophisticated. You That's know? the one I have as well. Right. It's got like a metallic purple finish. Yeah. On it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I love that. And then I have a synth, it's called the C4 synth pedal, which I think is made by oh, Source Audio. Okay. And they, and they also do a, a straight envelope, which has got a ton of, the Source Audio stuff is very innovative because there's a lot of, um, filtering and you could go into the pedal really easily and modify some of the settings. Uh-huh. Um, very nice. So I, I'm like, I kind of use any pedal that I like. I'm not really with one, you know, oh, yeah. I only use, like the TC reverb is great. I like the half, the way it's voiced. And I love the old MXR filter is ridiculous. And I have a Mike Beigel one, you know, the Mutron guy, the guy, yeah. who built the I have one of his Beigel, Forget what it's called, but it, he, I think he had to change the name slightly, but something Tron, but it's basically uh-huh. the new Mutron. Oh, okay. I've heard of that. Okay. Yeah. Very Mike's cool. a good, like, kind of genius, I think, of pedals. So, yeah, yeah that's kind of my, my setup. And, um, I try and keep it 
simple. I, I'm a big fan of straight bass sound, you know? Yeah. You know, I'm a big fan of getting it from you. And that's one of the things I work with with my students is I'm, I, I get a lot of emails from people and they always ask, how do you get that sound like on that jazz bass? And how do you get this? And I'm like, you know, it's not really the pedal I'm using, you know, or the preamp. I mean, of course it helps, right? But it's right. part of it is, you know, it's how you play, right? And if you spend years transcribing Michael Brecker or Pat Metheny or, you know, Patatucci's lines, you try, I always think you should try and get inside the transcription and make yourself, if you're going to transcribe Miles Davis's solo and so what, play along with Miles until your bass disappears into his trumpet sound. Ah. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, you're never going to, of course, sound that's like crazy. Miles. Right, right. But if you try and if you get inside the phrasing and the breath, Scott Devine, you know, from SBL, when I did my first... I did a, like a couple of video courses for them, you know, on like improvisation stuff. And, uh -huh. and we met in New York to film it actually, the first one. And he goes to, it was funny, and Scott goes, and he goes, it's really, man, you play, you have to do this thing that no other bass player does. And I said, what's that? And I, you know, it was like kind of, I was waiting, just like, interesting. What, what, and he goes, well, you, you don't always hit, you don't just hit the note. You'll sometimes come off the note, slide slightly off the note, or just let it kind of decay when you're playing a line, the way you'll end the note, the phrase. Huh. And I hadn't even noticed it. And then I listened back and then you become a bit self-conscious about how you're playing, you know? Right. But you know, he was right. I, I was kind of like afraid of the way I would imagine miles would kind of go play off the note. You go, bah. you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'll just go, duh. Cause right. you know, the first thing a student will do, if you go, okay, look, let me hear you just play a line over this. Most bass players, when they take a solo, their note length's really short. Do you notice that? When guys get nervous, right? Right. It's a bunch of short notes, yeah? Yeah, yeah. But think about Jaco. He didn't do that. He on Havona, right? Right? Those notes just sang, yeah? And if you remember, you know, in Jaco's interviews, he was always talking about listening to Sinatra, you know, right? And, and I, as a kid, I was like obnoxious. I was like, oh, that's not teaching me about how to play that lick. Frank Sinatra? You know. <laughs> now I have some Sinatra, especially the Joe Beam album when he sings Joe Beam. It's gorgeous. And you listen to the way Frank sings, and he's kind of lazy is the wrong word, but he's very relaxed in his phrasing. Mm -hmm. You don't hear Frank Sinatra rushing. No. no. Right? He's definitely like, right? It just, yeah. And, and so... And, and the stories I heard was he was very specific. He really, you know, when he sang, even though it sounds like it's off the cuff, he crafted that, you know. Uh, it wasn't okay. an accident how he yeah. delivered that, right. you know. And so... I, I want to imagine that it was, though. <laughs> something, you know, when we hear albums as well, you know, like, the, like I think the story about Havona is that it's two separate takes, right? His incredible solo on that. Uh -huh. And that they put them together, you know. And the thing is, sometimes, you know, we forget when we're kind of studying or trying to be, you know, better, and we hear these iconic things, we sort of, that feels unattainable, doesn't it? Because you don't mm -hmm. even know that actually it might have taken two takes to get it, right? Or it might have taken 20, you know yeah. what I mean? It was two takes together, but it could have been 10 takes and they chose two. You see right. what I mean? Right. And, and so sometimes I, I think it's good, sometimes it's good to look behind the curtain a little bit, do you know what I mean? And know that these guys are human. Human, Right. Right, yeah. exactly. Brilliant. It's like, yeah, but it, you know, it wasn't. Unlike Donnelly, that solo is kind of the same as his demo version of Donnelly. If you ever check that, it's virtually the same solo, right? So, 
you know, it's Jaco solo, but it, it's not strictly improvised. Right. Do you know what I mean? It's crafted. And mm -hmm. I get that. I, I don't see why you shouldn't do that on a record if it's something for, for posterity, right? Right. I mean, if it's good, it's good. It's to me, it's almost, I mean, it is a composition, that solo, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, it's yeah. just, it's as indelible as the melody. It's very hard to solo on Donna Lee and not be a little influenced by what Jaco did on those yeah. changes. Right. You know? And that's something, you know, with students, I mean, this is again, you know, a teaching thing. I mean, I always, I think the single thing, and I think this is missing from a lot of stuff online is, you know, people want quick fixes sometimes, you know, on YouTube, it's like the only lick you'll ever need to play jazz, you know, those videos, right? Oh, you know? wow. Yeah. Okay. You know what I mean, right? Or the yeah. one drum that Phil, you have to know, right? It's like, uh, something doesn't sound quite right there. Immediate gratification. Yeah. You know, right. It's going to take you 20 minutes to become the greatest player in the world, you know? <laughs> so but the thing is, you know, what I always say to my guys is like, you got to transcribe stuff and by transcribing it, I mean, you learn that stuff, right? But the better thing to do is also write it out, you know? Because it oh, would yeah. take me weeks sometimes when I started to write down solos from people uh -huh. or bass lines. Like I transcribed all of Anthony's bass lines on Shaka Khan records. And there's a, a track called You Got It by Barry Finity on an uh -huh. album called, I think it's called Lights Over Broadway or Broadway Lights. And it's Vinnie Colaiuta and Anthony. It was the first time they played together. Killer. Anthony Jackson's baseline on You Got It is terrifying. It's almost insanely brilliant, inspired, chromatic. He's, he's, playing, he's playing so many out note choices on it that are so perfect. And he's like dialoguing with Michael Brecker under Michael's solo. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous, you know. And so I wrote every note out. It used to drive me mental trying to hear it. You know, with a Sony Walkman, I didn't have yeah. a slow down app. I would burn the motors out every week on my Walkmans or smash them against the wall if I couldn't get the note, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I should have had an endorsement with Sony Walkmans. It would have saved me hundreds and hundreds of pounds, you know? <laughs> I love it. You know what Man. I mean? Like, burn it off the, your textbooks. I mean, of course, textbooks are great, but yeah. textbook is the record, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, right? Right. Go on right. record. Yeah. yeah. You want to learn how to play groove? Go listen to Jameson. Go listen to Jaco. Listen to Jerry Jammer, Aston Family Man. Anyone, right? Go listen to Mick Khan. But, and then you want to learn the solo? Listen to Michael Brecker. Listen to Matheny. Listen to Charlie Parker. Listen to Wayne Short. You know what I mean? Hell yeah. It's, everything is on that record that is in any textbook. Of right. Any word, right. Yeah. But Dude. you'll learn You'll learn it more deeply, won't you? If you, I, I still have licks in my playing from Pat Matheny solos I transcribed when I was 19, and I can show students, I go, this line is off a track will have you heard, and I'll play it. And it's not like I'm being mechanical, it's just like, do you understand how much deeper it sits in your, your body, you know, your psyche, your mind, when you've had to sit there for a week and slave over that line, right? To get it right. Yeah. And you write it out as well. And you're like, God, is that a 16? Is that and is he doing a triplet? Is he laying back? And and then, but when you've got it, and then you sit down with a recording and you can play it at tempo with Matheny or Herbie or whatever, you own that line. Oh, you're feeling it. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You see what I mean? Yeah. What what do you want most people to know about Rufus? Uh well, I guess in terms of where I'm at now, I mean, I you know, I guess I am sort of known more now as bass kind of music education guy, you know, and uh, I've got, you know, my website, rufusphilpot.com. Um, 
um, you know, stop by there if you want to hit me up about lessons because, you know, uh, I'm, I teach online and uh, I've got quite a lot of experience of that now. Um, and there's, I've just written a new study piece too, which I'm going to put up the next week on rhythm changes, you know, which is like a very typical standard progression. And I got awesome. a whole thing up on a 12 bar blues I wrote with the solo and an analysis. And these are hard. I wrote stuff that is ball busting. So I wanted stuff for people to, you know, to really work at, you know, and I, and I dive into them and I wrote a prelude, like a classical prelude for bass fairly recently, which is kind of like one of the Bach kind of organ preludes, like Picard or whatever, you know, those kind of things as well, or the cello suite. So I've been writing quite a lot of stuff for bass and I'll probably record these on an album as well. I hope this coming year, but, but I, I definitely, I really enjoy writing original stuff for bass players to work on, you know, as study pieces. I, I, I got a lot out of that as a kid when I would work on Bach or a Parker, Charlie Parker solo, you know, right. so I kind of wanted to do that for my instruments specifically, you know, so I've been doing that and uh, yeah, you know, and I'm still doing stuff for Scott's thing. I think I've got a seminar coming up and I have my Instagram too, Rufus Bass at Rufus Bass. Um, we're up to about 21,000 followers on that, which is not bad because I'm not, you know, I'm not I, like a celebrity. I'm not. I think it's pretty great. Yeah. It's all I wanted to do was post good content, either short, interesting clips, or sometimes I'll do like a one minute lesson and I'll talk about what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, a friend of mine in England, he said that to me. He goes, man, we've got to keep up this thing of like education, how we're doing it. And I thought it was hyperbole. I'm like, really? Do you think it's so special what I'm doing? And he goes, yeah. He goes, you, you are one of the guys that is doing it right. So I would agree with that. 100%. Well, it, it, yeah. it sort of me, you know, and I was chatting to some friends last night. It's nice when you hear that from your peers sometimes, you know, when, because sometimes you don't know, you're like, God, do people really hate what I'm doing? And it's like, right. you don't know, right? right. It's rare to sit down with another bass player and go, well, does this sound good or is this kind of boring? <laughs> I totally get it, man. I you totally know? get it. So it's, I think it's important because we've lost so many great players recently, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, Jeff, I, just very quickly, I mean, Jeff Andrews was another guy I loved. You, you know Jeff Andrews playing? No. So Jeff played with Michael Brecker in the 80s with the Mike Stern stuff as well. Oh, okay. Linked okay. a lot of the live stuff, but Jeff's on some of the recordings. There's also a Bob Berg record called Cycles that is incredible. And Jeff, there's a ton of stuff on YouTube with Jeff live with Michael Brecker. And Jeff Andrews. Yeah. Okay. And Jeff studied with Jarko and was very close with Jarko and Jarko oh, died. Great. Okay. Uh, gave him, I think, one of his bases. And oh, wow. Jeff, I took a lesson with in the 90s when he came to England on tour mm -hmm. and was just a great guy. And it, it just check out some of his on YouTube, you know. And you'll see when he takes a solo, too, he, he's like endless ideas. You, you're not going to be like, oh, that lick. It's like, it's this, it's, he'll take a five-minute solo and he's going to have this incredible arc to it, you know. And, and the lesson I took with him, which is, I think, a good one maybe for your listeners, was... We played over a blues and solo by standard. And afterwards, Jeff was like, man, yeah, he goes, you, you played like a lot of good ideas in that. Because the thing is, because what you could do is take one of those ideas and played it, done more with it through the changes. So instead of playing four or five different ideas, he yeah. goes, this idea. And he goes, let me show you. He goes, well, here's this idea. And he played something. And he goes, he took it all the way through a blues, but the same line, but just tweaking it, you know, a little uh, okay. bit to fit the changes. Yeah. And it was such a great lesson, you know, like take that one idea, but work it through. So focused. 
Yeah, and that's what Miles does on that kind yeah. of blue on the solo on So What. He refers back to that opening phrase. Right, right. Right? It's, you know, like George Russell wrote the whole arrangement around that solo. And it's like, you can't imagine, it's very hard playing So What, isn't it? Without that, Miles solo is almost part of the tune. Right. I, yeah, I mean, I would say so, for sure. It's, 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 so that's, you know, so I think those are the kind of things that, Right now, that's sort of where, you know, and it's great to chat with you guys. I really appreciate the, you know. Oh, man, uh, we yeah. really appreciate your time and your insights and experience. And and make sure uh, everybody listening out there to check out Rufus's uh, website and the Instagram stuff and uh, Scott's Bass Lessons stuff. And uh, thank you for listening into the Bass Freaks podcast. Stay healthy. Spread love, spread joy and kindness, good vibes and inspiration. And remember, you got this. Follow your path, whatever it may be, and just play. Until next time, cheers. And a huge thank you to Dunlop for making this show possible. And uh, make sure you check out Bass Freaks wherever you get your podcasts.